There are several things I do want to cover with you guys, and so I'm just going to jump right into things. So my first slide here, we have a picture of this couple embracing. And those of you guys, if you're online and you're seeing the title of the sermon, and it's called Embrace the Savior, you know? And so when I was looking through this passage and looking through the last part of uh, Philippians 3, and you're talking about pressing towards the mark and pressing towards the goal and striving to be that which God has called us to be, what does that striving look like and where does it lead to? And to me, it all led back to relationships. It all led back to an intimate connection with the Savior. Um, HL, I have a, have, a, have a good friend. He's a really close friend of HL's and, uh, and Daylight Church, Mike Hawk. And he sent out a, a quote, and this is just part of it here. But he talked about how the second part of Philippians 3 reminded him of in Ephesians when Paul talked or compares our relationship with God to a husband and, and, and wife relationship. And so uh, what he has here, you know, so there's an intimacy in our relationship with Christ. And that is what Paul is pursuing. He wants to know Jesus better so he can be closer to him. He wants to please his Savior. And I love that quote. And so I'm just going to continue on with uh, the vignettes. I love the way that H kind of describes uh, Philippians as a, a series of, of vignettes of little things that help us to draw closer to him. And I also like his theme here where he talks about seeing your story as a lived expression of Jesus' story, a story of letting go. So with that being said, let's jump into the scripture, folks. So we are going to start out with Philippians 3, and that is the 12th verse. So it reads as, as follows. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Moving forward, he says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Now, there are some great things here I can pull out because the time I don't have to go into all of those, but I love the fact that he talks about putting the past behind you, putting those things that are maybe hindering you from being the person God has called you to be and from having that tight embrace with, with the Jesus that we, that we know and love, putting those things behind you. You know, there's a reason why in your car the rearview mirror is smaller than the wind, is smaller than the windshield. Okay, so he's talking about moving forward and staying forward, but actually you can see underlined here uh, that heavenly prize. What is, what, what is he talking about there? And it reminds me, it's almost like uh, talking about a race and running your race. And it reminds me of uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he says, do you not know that in a race, all runners run their very best to win, but only one receives the prize. Run your race in such a way that you may seize the prize and make it yours. So we have this whole analogy here to pushing towards a prize, to pushing towards a reward. Now the question comes down to, what's the prize? What is the reward? And to find that answer, we actually have to go back to some previous verses here. We have to go back in this chapter, stand by. Okay, so we have to go back to Philippians 3.10. And when it says as such, 
For my determined purpose is that I may know him and that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection and that I may so share in his sufferings as to be continually transformed into his likeness, even to his death. So we can see here that there are three things that the Apostle Paul points out for us. Number one, he points out to know him. And anytime you see that word know, we know that it means to have a deep and intimate relationship and almost uh, a marital, you know, uh, behind the uh, wedding chambers relationship with our master. Okay. We also talk about here to also have a deep relationship with the power outflowing from, uh, from, the, from his resurrection. Okay. More to come on that. And then we talked about sharing in his sufferings. And that's usually a, a tough one uh, to grasp. But we're going to go into some of these. But when you look at a relationship and when you look at a married couple or any type of relationship, are not those three things, things that keep that relationship tight, that keep that relationship together? Don't uh, couples that, that last and marriages that last, they strive to know each other better? I have some good friends of mine uh, in Orange County, uh, California, and uh, the husband, uh, Cody, would sit me down. He's like, man, you know, I have a notebook of, that just has my wife's name on it. And in that journal, I write down everything. Every time I learn something new about her, I write it in that journal. And then every night I, I study it and I go over it because I want to know her better and I want to know how to be a better husband to her. And I just love that. I love that practice. So when a relationship to know each other, to understand the strength of that person, and we suffer with them, okay? And with the journey with us with Christ, even we, we suffer with Christ. And with that being said, when talking about these things and talking about knowing him and talking about sufferings, we've all gone through stuff, especially coming out of this past year, 2020. You know, there are several people that started out in my life personally that started out 2020 that didn't make it to the end. And when you talk about suffering, you know, then and, and the empty chairs around the, the, the Christmas table, the empty chairs around the Thanksgiving table, you know, and, and, and just the hurt that you go through, whether it's my Aunt Mary, whether it's my Uncle Frank, whether it's my Uncle Daniel, whether it's my Aunt Sherry, whether it's my Uncle Alexander Shellman, all change addresses to heaven. So what do you do with that loss? What do you do when the pillars in your life start to fade? What do you do when the, the people in your life that have held you up and built you up over the years, what happens when they start to leave and fall? You embrace the master. You lean in and you embrace the savior. And through your suffering, he suffers with you. Does that make sense? Let's keep it moving. So the one thing I didn't go into, and that is, what does it mean to know the power outflowing from this resurrection? I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. So uh, what it means is, it means his grace. Really, Tremaine, grace? Yes. Let me show you in the scriptures. So anytime an author, 
is, is, is writing a book. And H, I know you can relate with this. H.L., as you guys, a lot of you know, is a very accomplished author. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've heard even H.L. talk about is anytime you're introducing a new term to your audience, you want to make sure the first time you introduce that term that you provide the primary definition of that term. Now, later on in that book or transcript, you may mention secondary or tertiary uh, uh, definitions, but the first time you introduce that term, you want to introduce the primary definition of that term. And we see when we look at the term grace, the first time that the master mentions, mentions this word in the New Testament comes right here. 2 Corinthians 12, it says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So what does that mean? That means God's empowerment of you is made perfect when you are weak. What that means is grace is God's power to do in you what your flesh cannot do on its own. Now, there's a, um, a ministry out there called Messenger International, outstanding ministry. Uh, you can definitely Google them. But uh, they did a survey, and they surveyed several thousand people, uh, all you know, uh, Bible-believing Christians, to, to get a definition of grace. And these were the top three things they gave. They said grace is salvation. Grace is an unmerited gift. Grace is forgiveness of sins. And grace is all of these things. But only 2% of them knew that grace is God's empowerment. So with that being said, let's look at this quote here from Matthew Henry. It says, wherever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace and a pressing towards the perfection of grace. So wherever there is that empowerment, even this letter that we're reading, he starts out the whole letter uh, of Philippians talking about grace be unto you. If you're already saved and you're already forgiveness of sin, if you've already been forgiven for your sins, then there would be no point in him saying forgiveness of sins be unto you because you're already forgiven of your sins. But if you say the empowerment of Christ Jesus be unto you and peace be unto you, that makes more sense. So grace is his empowerment. All right, let's move forward. So this next section here in this text deals with disagreements and deals with disagreements among the church. And just to give you guys a little bit of background uh, with the church in Philippi, there were disagreements on matters of law. There were disagreements on matters of Jewish custom. There were some folks that had this custom and some folks that had that custom. Do we circumcise? Do we not circumcise? Do we eat this food? Do we not eat this food? All these different things that they were sometimes bicker and argue about within the body of Christ. And so let's see what Philippians 3 has to, says about, has to say about this. It says, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But if we must hold on, but we must hold on to the progress we have already made. I'm going to read that again. He said, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But if we must hold, but we must hold on to the progress we've already made. Okay. So, so what is he? What is he talking about here? I was, I'm going to look at this uh, 
quote here from, from Matthew Henry, and I love the way that he kind of lays this out. He says, whatever it is wherein you differ, you must wait until God gives you a, a better understanding, which he will do in, in due time. In the meantime, as far as you have attained, as far as you have attained, you must go together in the ways of God. Join together in all the great things in which you agreed and wait for further light in the things wherein you differ or the things wherein you disagree. And what I love about this passage, what I love about this passage, number one, he speaks to spiritual maturity. Listen to me, people. If it doesn't take a lot of spiritual maturity to develop a godly brother-sister relationship with someone that you agree on every little thing with. doesn't take a lot of maturity to do that. It does take maturity to have a brother, godly brother-sister relationship with the people who you disagree with. And one of the things, you know, of course I have H here uh, in, the, in the audience. We have been friends for over, over 20 years. And listen, this, this man, he really is like my brother. He really is. Have we always agreed? No. Have we had, um, I wouldn't call them arguments, have we had uh, aggressive negotiations? <laughs> Episode two reference, boom. Uh, yes, we have. Do we agree on everything right now? No. We'll have conversations and we'll go back and forth and it'll, it'll be two hours, it'll be three hours. And I'm like, man, H, uh, I'm not buying it. And here the, here the scripture reasons why. He's like, well, I can see why you would think that, but here's what this. And I'm like, well, I can see that too. But we just go back and forth. And you know what? After that two and three hour deliberation, I'll st- I'll, there are times where I still come away with, brother, I can appreciate your perspective, but I haven't seen enough evidence or you haven't shown me enough evidence to uh, have me to buy into your philosophy on this. And then vice versa. Tremaine, I can see where you're coming from, but I just haven't seen enough evidence for me to buy in to your perspective on that. But none of those differences affect our relationship. I'm still his brother. I'm still brother to his wife. I'm still Uncle T to his kids because those little things don't affect where we're going and who we are in Christ. Going back to the scripture, because we are spiritually mature, H and I, we can agree on these things. And what are the these things? We just talked about that. To know him, to share in his sufferings and he with us, and to walk and better understand the grace or God's empowerment in him and in us. I'm going to show you guys this picture here. We're going to talk about disagreement. And this is going to be, you know, maybe a newsflash for some folks here. But in looking at this picture, we see a football player kneeling and a football player standing. Newsflash, when the judgment seat of Christ, when Christ is sitting on that judgment seat, I don't think he's going to damn the person to hell that is kneeling for kneeling. I don't think the guy standing is going to get an automatic pass into heaven for standing or vice versa. I don't even think at judgment God is even going to bring up these things. What the point that I want you to grasp is that both of these individuals, God loves them both. And both of those individuals can love each other and embrace each other. As, as, as brothers. 
You see what I'm saying? The little things don't matter because it's kneeling part of the to know him, to know his power, and to know his suffering? No. Is standing a part of to know him, to know his power, and to know his suffering? No. So with that being said, it is our job to become spiritually mature and learn to love. You hear me? Learn to love the body of Christ, even, I would say, especially those who are different, different than us, especially those that have a different perspective than us. Food for thought. My name is Tremaine, and I'm your friend. Moving forward. Okay, so we're now going into um, Philippians, still in Philippians 3, but we're now moving into verses 17 through 18. And it reads as such, Brethren, together follow my example. Of though, observe those who live after the pattern we have set for you. For there are many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Moving on. They are doomed and their fate is eternal misery. Their God is their stomach or their appetites. And they glory in their shame, siding with earthly things and being of their party. But we are citizens of the state which is in heaven. Moving on. And from it, also we earnestly and patiently await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, who will transform and fashion anew the body of our humiliation to conform to and be like the body of his glory and majesty by exerting that power which en enables him to even to subject everything to himself. By the way, this is the amplified version that I'm taking these passages from. Uh, these passages from, if you're wondering why they are uh, a bit more uh, robust as far as with their language. But I want to hone back in on this part right here. He talks about those who are outside the body. And he talks about those who uh, are not following, are not following Jesus. And he says in tears, he's talking about this. That's kind of an important, important point too, because we weep for those we love. You don't hear that he says, hey, they're living this terrible life and <laughs> they deserve it. <laughs> Turn or burn center. You get what you're coming. <laughs> Flames on the way. <laughs> he doesn't have that thought process. He's like, I'm, I'm weeping over this. But he describes it. He says, they, they are doomed and their fate is eternal misery. Their God is their stomach or their God is their appetites, the things that drive their flesh. And he said, and they glory in their shame. So the things that should be shameful, the things that should be shameful, they're proud of. Okay. And he said, they're siding, siding with earthly things and being of their party. But we are citizens, which is, uh, we are citizens of the state, which is in heaven. And I'm going to tell you something, and that's being very transparent, and I say this with love, okay? I purposely highlighted those words in those colors. Because in meditating over this everything over the past several years, and going through what I've gone through for the, uh, this over the past couple years, with this everything from racial tension, from death over here, from dealing with illness, and dealing with all these diff different things, 
One of the disappointing things was seeing the body of Christ. If you picture, if you picture your life as a vehicle, it was so disappointing to see the body of Christ take Jesus Christ, throw him in the back seat, and then put their political affiliations in the driver's seat. And then every now and then ask Jesus if, Jesus if he can co-sign on who's driving. And I say this with love. That's one of the reasons why I love the fact that he points out that we are not citizens of this earth and the things of this earth. I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved in politics. That's a whole nother topic. I'm not saying you shouldn't concern yourself for certain things. That's a whole nother topic. Okay. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying, make sure you keep the main thing, the main thing. Maybe instead of thinking, oh, where well, are you on this side or on this side? Are you red? Or are you blue? Hey, if, if you're in heaven and God's separating out people and he says, if you're on the red party, stand over here. If you're on the blue party, stand over here. And if you love, trust and worship me, stand over here. Where are you going to stand? Keeping the main thing, the main thing, spiritual maturity. Okay, a couple things here and I'm going to wrap up. To strive or not to strive. So a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, HL kind of opened up this whole series talking about, uh, talking about Philippians and talking about uh, this, this book and talking about it being vignettes. And one of the things that he emphasized was letting go. One of the things that he emphasized was not striving. Okay? And so now we come to a dilemma here because we have two what seems to be conflicting messages. We have at the beginning of this book talking about, uh, beginning of this chapter, talking about not striving and letting go. And then we have this part of the chapter, which is talking about striving and moving forward and connecting with the Savior, being the person that God has called us to be. So how do we balance those two? How do we balance that dichotomy? And here's what it made me think of. Maybe we think of these two people. Because most Christians, when they think of Christianity, when they think of not striving, when they think of this being passive, they, they picture a more Mother Teresa type of person. But what they don't picture is someone like the person on the right, one of the greatest football players of all time, Reggie White. So when people think about uh, Christianity, and, and it's in general, when people think about Christians, it's like, oh, that person on the left, you know, they're, they're definitely not striving. They're definitely letting go. Like, that's the walk of a Christian. They don't think about, you know, <clears throat> they don't think about a man that did 1,112 bone-crushing tackles over his career. They don't think about of a guy who did 198 quarterback sacks in his career. They don't think about a guy who played for three NFL teams. They don't think about a guy who was a two-time defensive player of the year, eight-time first-team All-Pro, five-time second-team All-Pro, 13-time Pro Bowl, two-time NFL sack leader, three-time NFC defensive player of the year. You mean to tell me God doesn't want that man to strive? You mean to tell me he's not in the middle of being the exact person God has called him to be because he's out crushing heads on the, on the, football, on the football field, you know, and maybe while another, uh, another Christian person is doing a missions trip? Here's the thing. The ministry of the body of Christ is more expansive than we like to sometimes make it. You see what I'm saying? 
And here's what it comes, here's what it comes down to. Both of these people are outstanding people of faith. I don't know if some of you know this, but Reggie White was an outspoken man of faith. After he retired, he de devoted the rest of his life to ministry and became a full-time pastor. He devoted, he spent uh, a lot of his money that he made donating it to different things, donating to different things to move the kingdom of God forward. Okay? Sometimes we tend to think of the work of God only being me talking up here. Sometimes, you know what? On the body of Christ, it's the internal organs that are more important than the external. If H or myself, if we're up here preaching, okay, we're a, we're a mouthpiece. You know what? The people who are paying to keep the lights on, that's equally, if not more important. You see what I'm saying? And so I'm not going to criticize, condemn, or complain about someone who is called by God to be, uh, to be a striving Christian like Reggie White. See what I'm saying? Nor would I ever criticize, get them complain, someone who uh, is a bit more passive in their demeanor with Mother, as Mother, Mother Teresa. So what does it come down to? Okay. When you see towards the end of this, the end of the uh, third chapter, where Christ talks about, already talk about Christ coming back and Christ making everything well, making everything whole. When we embrace the Savior, when we embrace who he is and everything that he is, he wakes up the true us that he has called us to be. So I want to end with this. It all comes down to a relationship with the master. It comes down to intimately know him. We press to be close to him. We press to be a better bride to, to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We press to know him. We press to gain more of his uh, grace, his empowerment to do what our flesh cannot do on its own. And we embrace to suffer with him. Like any great spouse, we suffer with our partner till death do us part. But because we have eternal life, we don't, get, we don't have to part with our partner. So a couple of quotes here. When you go back to to strive or not to strive, the answer is in the embrace. It's being in the embrace of Jesus that will reveal if you're not striving is rest or if you're not striving is laziness. It's being in the embrace of Jesus that will reveal if you're striving and you're pressing is for his glory or if you're striving and you're pressing is for your glory. Last thing I'll say, going back to this section where it talks about Jesus coming back and making everything well making everything good. What are we to do in the meantime? Do we like sit back and wait? What, what do we do until Christ comes back and fixes everything? We embrace. When Christ comes back, let him catch you in the act of embracing him, pressing toward the reward of his presence, his power, his suffering, his mission. Thank you, Daylighters. 
Have an outstanding day. Have an outstanding week. And let's go out and embrace the master.